Okay, Acts. Chapter 8. We're going to be looking at a big chunk, uh, verses 1 through 25. Saul approved of his execution. This is coming on the heels of Stephen being martyred for his faith. And Saul approved the execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said. But by Philip, when they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached uh, good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and then after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen uh, on any of them, but he, they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money, you have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. And when they had testified and spoken... The word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. We've been in the book of Acts now for several months. And we know that these beginning chapters uh, tell us the history uh, of what took place in regard to the ministry of the disciples of Jesus immediately after his uh, uh, ascension into heaven. 
uh, we've studied up to this part mostly what Peter and John were doing, just, but just remember the other disciples were doing the same sorts of things. And we understand this, that uh, if you're familiar with the book of Acts, you know that when we get to chapter 13, then the shifting is going to be almost entirely to the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And we see Paul here introduced in this particular passage. Here he's called Saul. We know that uh, when he actually comes uh, active in the ministry that his name will be changed to Paul. First time he appears. Up to now, the persecution of the church has been restricted more or less to Jerusalem. Not so much beyond. But as the gospel begins to spread like a raging fire through Jerusalem and beyond, persecution follows rapidly on its heels. And that is often the case, as history attests. Where the gospel goes, persecution typically arises. It's so difficult in Jerusalem that, uh, that they scatter throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. They, we understand here, being those who heard the message of the apostles and they believed it. For now, the apostles themselves remain in Jerusalem, but they will soon be dispersed the far reaches of the Roman world and even beyond. Remember the Great Commission. Jesus called them to go to the remotest parts of the world, not to just stay in Jerusalem. All of the 11 disciples, apostles that are left at this point, minus Judas, but they've accepted another in this place, will in fact suffer martyrdom for their faith, with the exception of the apostle John. And very often when they died, they died in far off places from Jerusalem. But here we have the apostle, not the apostle Paul yet, but Saul, who will be called Paul, who was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. It seems at this point that Paul himself was the greatest persecutor of the early church. Not just a persecutor of the church, but perhaps the greatest persecutor of the church. That scattering was a good thing. <laughs> they, they certainly, when they, they, you know, they started you know, causing the church to scatter... They thought it was a good thing that they would be spread out and that would be the end of this business that they were doing. But actually what they're doing is they're fulfilling, helping to fulfill the Great Commission. <laughs> the ravaging of the church causes the church to spread. 
But I think you could probably argue that Paul was perhaps the greatest persecutor of the very early church. We don't have any mention anywhere else of anybody doing the kinds of things that Paul is doing at this point. But those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip goes down to Samaria and proclaims the gospel of Christ to them. Fulfillment of what Jesus has said to them before. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the world. So we're seeing the, the Great Commission actually becoming, coming to fulfillment at this point. Just the roots of it starting. And it all started with persecution of the church. Something we need to always be mindful of, and that is very often God's purpose is served, fulfilled in the persecution of the church. And sometimes it has as its purpose to disperse the church. In other words, to push the church to be faithful to the Great Commission. Philip went to Samaria, the city, which is just north of Jerusalem, about 30 miles. Philip is one of the original 12 disciples of Jesus. He's not only preaching the gospel, he's always doing miraculous works, performing miracles, healing people, casting out unclean spirits. I think that most of us would, would agree with this, that modern medicine in our day has accomplished a lot. That is even making a difference even in third world countries. Just looking at some statistics this week, because I wanted to figure out where we are now compared to where we were, you know, 100 years ago as far as you just the wealth and well-being of people in general. In 1950, in the United States, the average lifespan was 60 years. Now, how many people in here are over 60? Most of us. 2015, it is 79 years. Even the undeveloped world has benefited. In 1950, the average lifespan in our dear Uganda was 40 years. Today, it is 60 years. So in that short a period of time, people are, are living a third longer on the average than in Uganda than they were. Honduras is very similar to, 
to Uganda. In 1950, the average lifespan in Honduras was 40 years. Today it is 77. Just to put things historically in comparison, they estimate that the average lifespan in the Roman Empire during the days we're talking about here in the Bible was 35 to 40 years. So I'm telling you, until more recently, people that lived in third world countries were living at about the same health standard as people were in the Roman Empire 2,000 years ago. But we all understand that the things that benefit this are better nutrition, pharmaceuticals, surgeries, other medical procedures. We live in a very, very blessed time. I think very often we don't give much consideration to that. We, we, very often we approach life as if everyone has had all the benefits that we've had. And we don't think about how God has greatly blessed us in ways that people in the past just never knew. People are healed today regularly from debilitating diseases. Better nutrition, better medical care. Things that are considered today to be more or less routine, not so many years ago would have been considered miraculous. We live in the day of great miracles. Perhaps more than any other time in the history of the world. And we're almost oblivious to it. Common thought is that as time passes, the average lifespan will just continue to increase as science and medicine advance. Which is all great. But what I would say to you is this, is it's not all great. That this has had some degree of negative effects upon us. That very often the human advances that have been made have dulled us to what is truly miraculous. What we, or what would have been considered to truly be miraculous years ago, now is almost accepted as being rather routine very often. We're living longer on the average. Why? Because God has blessed us in ways that he didn't bless other people in the past. What would his reasons be? Well, we can't read the mind of God. I'm not going to pretend to do that. But I would imagine that one of these, one of the reasons he gives us more longevity is this. It gives us more time to bear fruit for him. 
In other words, we have the potential of impacting more lives in our lifetime than people in the, other, in, in the history behind us. Not, not less, but more. Unfortunately, very often Christians approach retirement not much differently than unbelievers. You know, with a mindset that, uh, you know, all those working years, I had to do that and this, that, and the other. Now I'm in retirement. Now it's my time to do what I want to do. To be about my own things. To be about my own business. What do you think God's intention is it in, in it? <laughs> Can't speak for him, but can speculate possibly on this. And that is one of the reasons that God is allowing us to live longer is certainly that we would have more opportunities to tell other people about Jesus. Not that we would just be doing our thing. Simon was a witch doctor, basically. He practiced magic and amazed the people. Now, you and I live in a world where stuff like that really pretty much doesn't go on. I mean, how many witch doctors do you know? I mean, literally. <laughs> Not doctors you consider maybe to be witches. <laughs> I think the very best application of what's going on here, it, this is true for me, it's probably true for Dick and Barb and maybe Walter, Walter's not here, but the people that have been to, to Uganda. And let me tell you this, Lori and I, well, Lori too, especially Lori in a sense, Lori and I were the first of all those people to go. And let me tell you, the Uganda that we went to is not at all the Uganda that is there now. I mean, things have turned around. Things are so much better. And this, we, got, we were there when, when the, the, the country was still suffering from the ravages of war brought on by Idi Amin. The country was in shambles. They had no economy at all. But they first went to, you know, they were, they were in Kampala, where Jack Miller started his ministry, and they eventually gravitated to a place called Fort Portland. From Port, Fort Portal, they eventually went up into a place called Bundabalinga, which is right on the border with Zaire. Now, talk about brave people. You're talking about people going into areas where people frequently get murdered and et cetera and et cetera. Or even enslaved. Can you imagine that? But when the World Harvest missionaries first started going into Bundabuzio, they, they realized that there were active witch doctors there and that the religion that the people practiced 
was basically black magic. But nonetheless, they did their evangelism. You know what happened? Eventually, they had work witch doctors, ex-witch doctors, converting to Christianity. They had a big party at the church one day where all these witch doctors brought all of their trinkets they used in their dark arts and whatever, and they built a big bonfire in front of the church, and they burned it all up. That's not a fairy tale. That is a real life thing that took place not so many years ago in this fallen world. I want to read something to you. you want to know more about the conflict, there's no better book than A Distant Grief by Kepha Simpanji. He is a dear brother in Christ. He is a pastor in Uganda. Just... This something really happened to him. Either he's crazy or he was on some psychotic thing or this actually something he saw when he was a young boy. His mother sent him to this shrine where there was a woman. In the center of the shrine were four Roof poles embroidered with colored beads and back claws. And through the poles, I saw a long hearth covered with goat skins. The hearth was protected by a barrier raised of shields. And behind the barrier was a burning fire. In the hot coals of the fire sat a woman. You get the picture? I stared at her in astonishment, and she welcomed me in the same male voice I had heard from the, dock, or the doorway. Come here, my child. Do not be afraid. I am glad to see you, and will soon be happy in your new, you will soon be happy in your new home. My heart was beating furiously as I knelt and returned her greeting in the manner my mother had taught me. The woman smiled at me, pleased at my politeness, but my face was frozen in fear. Who was this woman who could sit in the middle of a scorching hot fire and not be burned? Why did she speak like a man? I stared at the flames licking around her clothes, but I could see nothing unusual in her dress. She wore a simple cloth garment like the women of my own village, and her hair was well trimmed. There were no tribal scars on her face. Her one exceptional feature was her kindness to me, a small child and a stranger in her house. Either this guy's crazy, or this is a fictitious book, or this is true in the world not so many years ago. See, very often it's easy for us to be disconnected because our life doesn't look anything like that at all. Has anyone in here ever seen anything that comes close to something like that? 
when we first read it, we're going, I don't believe that. Stuff like that doesn't really happen. But what I'm telling you is in today's world, in places, stuff like this is happening right now. Just because we're blind to it, just because we're ignorant of it, doesn't mean that this presence is not still here in the world. But just like we've seen in Uganda, then in the midst of this, the gospel comes and it spreads like a raging fire. This is what's going on here in Jerusalem, in Judea, and now even into Samaria. And it's going to continue to spread and grow the church. When the apostles heard that the Samaritans had received the word, they sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen upon them. But they had been baptized in the name of Jesus. Then they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. There's a question here that's not necessarily that easy to answer. And that is, when did these Samaritans actually come to faith in Jesus? Was it before or after John and Peter came? What I would say to you is this. So I think the very best explanation is this. The Holy Spirit does not only set us aside and saves us, it also imp- he also empowers us. That this, in fact, is, is, is Peter and John have come to them now and the Holy Spirit goes forth. What I would say to you, it's not, it's not that they're, they're being converted at this point, it's that they're, they're converted, but what the Holy Spirit is doing now is gifting them and enabling them to do the ministry they've been called to. It's an empowering act of the Holy Spirit. Not the converting act of the Holy Spirit. The converting act of the Holy Spirit had already taken place. The Holy Spirit not only converts, but he also enables every believer. He gifts us and enables us to be used actively in the ministry of Jesus Christ here in the world. In some fashion, in some way. Sometimes people think that only certain people are gifted to do those kinds of things. The reality is not. Is the Holy Spirit gifts every one of us in ways that we're able to do that. Holy Spirit not only converts, he also enables every believer, not just some. He not only calls us to ministry, he also enables us to do ministry.
Simon, seeing all this going on, <laughs> he tried to bribe the apostles to do the same for him. So this is one of the questions. Was Simon converted? Was he a believer? Etc. R.C. Sproul writes this. He says, The grace of God cannot be earned or merited or begged or borrowed or stolen. It certainly cannot be bought. If you think that the grace of God is for sale, then you insult him as deeply as Simon Magnus did. Just remember, grace is always unmerited favor, freely given, never deserved, earned, or purchased. Period. If it is earned or deserved or purchased, whatever it is, it's not grace. Now, so a great debate is raised in the church through all these years. Was Simon a believer or was Simon not a believer? Some people are going, other people are going. Some people are like, who knows, who cares? <laughs> you guys have heard the term carnal Christianity? In other words, a very superficial form of Christianity. It's the idea that, you, you know, you make a profession of faith in your life at some point, and then you can live your life in any manner that you want to. It doesn't really matter. Jesus has saved you and, and that sort of thing. Would you say that's common thought today or a rare thing? Very common. Very common amongst church people. If somebody, when they were 10 years old, were, they were baptized, they made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ, and that was just it. Doesn't matter how they've lived their life since then. You think there are a lot of people that fit in that category? They're confident they're going to heaven just simply because they were baptized or made a profession of faith sometime in their life, but they haven't lived anything like a Christian's called to? Unfortunately, I think there are probably a lot of people that would fit in that category, especially in places like the good old U.S. of A. Listen to me. Real conversion always means radical life change. Always. What's called carnal Christianity is simply is not Christianity. As a matter of fact, it's a perversion of Christianity. But there are a lot of people out there that practice it. Is Simon saved or not? I don't know. Not that big of a deal to me. I don't know about you. 
apostles go to Samaria, Peter and John in particular, and they're there for a while, but then they return back to Jerusalem to preach the gospel. And on their way, they stop and they, pre- they preach the gospel to many of the villages of the Samaritans. For a little while, Jerusalem is going to continue to be the center of ministry for the, for the disciples. But the time will come when they will be dispersed. What is it going to be that's going to cause them to encourage them to disperse? Persecution. And reality is this, as we know from his history, that uh, 11 of the original disciples died martyrs' deaths. John was the only one that did not. All the others died horrible, horrific deaths. Because they left Jerusalem and went to the remotest parts of the world like Jesus told them to. That was their great commission, not to stay in Jerusalem but to go forth into the world. Sometimes we think, boy, it sure would be a lot easier if I saw some of these miracles. But as we have said recently a number of times, if you want to look at a miracle that's really close to home, look at yourself. Because if you are saved, God saved you. If you're different, it's because God is changing you. You're not the same person that you used to be. That should encourage you. As long as you're going in the right direction. And God sent his spirit and his spirit indwells you. And as the spirit indwells you, then you are being changed. You're becoming more and more that temple of the Holy Spirit. And what is it, the, 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 the main thing that separates Reformed Christians apart from others? You can say it in one sentence. God saved me, I did not save myself. God saved me, I didn't do it. God saved me, I deserve no credit for it. We're about to celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning, and so many people believe that Jesus came into the world for the purpose of just providing a pathway for people to follow into salvation. And I would imagine the vast majority of Christians in the world today believe that, that the Bible teaches that. But let me tell you something, the Bible does not teach that at all. The Bible teaches us that Jesus came into the world to save the elect. 
Now, we don't know who they are, and very often they're the people that we don't think are. Does it surprise you that Christ saved you? It should, because if it doesn't, you don't know yourself very well. All the time, you know, people are wanting miracles. You know, if I could just see a miracle, so on and so on and so on, then it'd make it a whole lot easier to believe. But we pass right over ourselves, because I want to just tell you this morning that you are the greatest miracle around. Because God changed you. God saves sinners. They do not save themselves. What a precious truth that is. It's one that people need to hear. makes all the difference in the world to understand that simple truth. Let me tell you something. If that doesn't motivate us, nothing's going to. It's understanding how special we are to him. Understanding that we, each one of us, there's enough sin in each one of us that if Jesus came to save one person, and that person was me, he still would have had to do everything that he did. That's how bad we are. You want a measurement of how, how great a sinner you are? That's it. It's also a measure of how great his love for you is. That he has done for you great things. He's done for you unbelievable things in any other context. Miraculous things, fabulous things, phenomenal things. Why did he say, do this in remembrance of me? Obviously, because we need to remember this, right? So what is it that we're remembering when we take the Lord's Supper? Certainly, it's a picture of his suffering, right? His body and his blood, suffering is part of that. But at the same time, it is the one and only measure of how great the love of God is for He held nothing back. He gave it all. For Bucky. For Joan. For Butch. All. The 
Christ's team is going to come and he is going to handle preparation.